The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 30th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good morning. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and some of you may know that. Some of you may have forgotten that. I have not been up here in a little while. Um, along the line of giving thanks to what God is doing here and the blessings that he has seen fit to give us, I would like to encourage you to take a moment this week at some point uh, to not only thank God for the continual blessing that we just celebrated, but thank God for the way that he has shown fit to, to pour out various gifts and abilities and, and talents and callings in this church. I just want you to know that the calling to pastor a church and in particular to lead a church and understanding and surrendering to God's word is a difficult challenge. And God has seen fit to bless this church with a number of men who not only feel called to the task, but he has equipped uniquely to be able to do it. In the last six weeks, I have not been up here. I've been in various places doing various things, and we'll talk about that in the coming weeks and even out of the country for the last two weeks. Uh, but God has been so kind to us to richly bless us with his word through the men that he has called. So I want you to recognize that and, and take some time this week to thank God for that gift to us and to ask him to help us as a church better steward that gift for his glory and the good of his people here in Richmond. So I want to encourage you to do that. He has been so kind to us, far more kind to us than we could have ever imagined or even felt like we deserved. So I want to encourage you with that, and then now we've got to deal with God and His Word. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open it up to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. As a heads up, next week we are going to begin our new series, Working Our Way Through the Book of Galatians. So if you want to go ahead and be reading a little bit of Galatians and getting yourself situated and oriented with it, we're going to spend some time there starting next week. But well, really, to be honest with you, I had intended to do it this week, but given my last two weeks where I spent the better part of my time with Central Asian pastors, church planters, refugees, missionaries, um, I was confronted uh, day in and day out with stories of, of great tragedy and sadness and hardship and loss and danger and and heartache, and desperation, and nearly every single day at the same time, I was confronted with stories of God's amazing grace running unencumbered throughout some of the darkest places on the face of this earth, and a thought began to shift my intention towards our time this morning, and, and here it is. Here's what I wrote down in a little notebook while I was gone and began to process for us this morning. If you and I, as God's people, are going to be used by God to see an entirely unengaged and unreached people group on the face of this earth, in, in particular as we've looked at it in Central Asia, reached with the gospel. If we're going to be used by God to, to see what we would call a revival of gospel joy pulsating throughout the city of Richmond where he's even placed us, if, if you and I want to see homes, moms and dads with kids who live in the delight and joy of the gospel, there's something that you and I are going to have to do. We're going to have to do something if we want to see that reality take place. And here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to learn how to own our weakness. 
We're going to have to learn how to come to grips with our utter inability to see any of those things come to pass in our own strength. It's Family Sunday. We're celebrating new life even together, moms and dads. If you want to see your home, your children alive to the joy of God and the grace of his son, Jesus, if you want to see that joy animated throughout your home, if you want to see your kids walk in the fear and joy of the Lord all of their days, you're first going to have to come to terms with your utter inability to make that happen for your kids. You're going to have to face facts. One of the greatest challenges of the church in the West, in particular the church in America, is our over-dependence upon our own resources, our over-dependence upon our own abilities, our over-dependence upon our own ingenuity, our over-dependence upon our own sense of ability. Great men of the church began to put their finger on this decades ago. Francis Schaeffer, some, someone many of you might be familiar with, he was writing back in the 60s and 70s in, in a fantastic little sermon called The Lord's Work, The Lord's Way. Schaeffer said this about the church in America. The central problem of our age is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, is tending to do the Lord's work and the power of the flesh rather than the power of the Spirit. What Schaefer wants to go on and enumerate in that sermon is that you and I don't like to come to terms with our inability. We don't like to come to terms with what the Apostle Paul will call our weakness. At every moment of exposure of our inability, our pride battles any level of honesty concerning ourselves. Yet here's the reality. The more sufficient you and I as God's people think we are to see something like an entirely unengaged, unreached people on the face of the earth come to know the grace of God through Christ, to see the gospel take root there, to see a real revival of gospel joy break out in this city, to see our kids come to know what it means to be rescued from their sin by the grace of God in Christ. The more sufficient you and I think we are to see that happen the further away from the end will actually be. That was the situation for the church in Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, the Lord would say to them through John, for you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. And you might recall the words of the Lord to that church in that situation remaining that way, he said, I'll spit you out of my mouth. I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be us. You see, it's only as we come to terms with our weakness and our inability that we find ourselves in a position to be used by God to see something utterly spectacular. Like an unengaged people hear the God hearing the gospel. Our city no longer being able to ignore the reality of Christ because of the lives of his people lived out amongst them. Our families enjoying the grace of God together. And even something as spectacular as you and I living day in and day out in joyful confidence in the grace of God. See, the Apostle Paul knows our natural tendency to want to deny our weakness to want to find ways and manipulate ways in our own mind and heart to lean into what we think is our perceived ability to accomplish something that God would call us to. 
And so this morning, as a word of encouragement to us and instruction, I want us to listen to the Apostle Paul. I want us to listen to how he prays for God's people when he begins this letter in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to listen to it, and then we're going to take the time that we have this morning to look at just a few things that he says as a way of encouragement to us and hopefully instruction to us as a family. So Ephesians chapter 1, let's start in verse 15, and I want you to hear this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here is what Paul is praying for God's people. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As you heard Paul pray for God's people, a people just like you and I who have the natural tendency to feel like within themselves and within their own wisdom and within their own strength, they have the capacity to do what God is calling them to do as his people. As, as you listen to Paul pray for them, did you hear Paul pray that God's people would be overflowing with resources, that the popularity and the reputation of the church amongst the city would grow so they could wield some level of influence amongst the place where God had placed them? Is that what Paul prayed for when he thought about God's people, where he placed them? It's not. What Paul felt was most essential for the church, what he longed for as someone who loved them, who had cared for them, who had preached the gospel to them, who had taught them, what Paul longed for is that God's people would know and understand what God has already done for them and given to them through Christ, and that knowing this, they would live lives of utter dependence upon God and the surpassing greatness of his power towards them who believe. John Stott put it far more clearly and succinctly than I can. John Stott says that what Paul prays here in Ephesians 1 and therefore encourages us as God's people to copy is this, both to keep praising God that in Christ all spiritual blessings are ours and to keep praying that we may know the fullness of what he's given us. Family, there's no better longing that you and I could have for this church. There's no greater longing that you could have for your family than this, than to know in exceeding measure in your heart what God has done for you through Christ and in knowledge of that, live today and tomorrow and the next day to come in utter dependence upon his immeasurably great power towards you. Let's just take a moment. Just, I want to take just a minute. And if Paul will do this and God will do this through his spirit here, I just want Paul's prayer here to instruct us a little bit 
on how you and I can begin from this place going forward, praying this way and hoping this way for our church? What is it that you and I can be more intentional in praying about? The first thing that Paul actually says here, and and, and there's so much here, I I know many of you that are very detail-oriented are going to get frustrated because I'm going to go through this and I'm not going to pick apart everything, but I want you to hear the big rocks in this prayer. The first thing that Paul actually prays for and by way of instruction encourages us in is to pray that you, pray that we as God's people would simply know God better. I mean, that is the literal translation of the beginning of this prayer. In verse 17, when he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, I want you to sit on this last phrase. It's that you might grow in the knowledge of him. And in understanding that, you've got to make a very careful distinction. Paul is not praying that you and I, that the church, would grow simply in a greater knowledge about God. Knowledge is important. Information is essential. He's not simply praying for informational knowledge. He's praying about knowing. It's not just information. What Paul is after here is a level of intimacy. And if we were going to be honest in a moment, and I won't, allow, I won't ask you to raise your hands because I know it's difficult in a place like this, but who in hearing this would say that they already know God this way well enough? I already know God intimately and relationally well enough. I can pray this for someone else, but I think I'm okay. Honestly, you and I, we hear something like this, and there's something in your heart, if you're attuned to what the Spirit is doing, there's something in your heart that stirs and says, I want to know Him better. There's depth of intimacy and relationship that I have seen, that I've heard Him promise in His Word, that I want. This prayer touches something that God hardwired us for. I think we hear about it, and and the residing chorus in our hearts is yes and amen. And here's what happens. We walk out of here, and the more A-type of us go and try to find the right book that's going to tell us exactly how to get it. And there's no shortage of books that tell us exactly how to get that relationship. But that's not what Paul directs them to. We miss something all, all along when we hear this and talk about this. This kind of intimacy, this kind of knowledge, this kind of relational connectedness that Paul is talking about here, knowing God better, it simply comes by asking for it. There's not a book that can give it to you. There's not another person that can cultivate it for you. There's not a strategy that I can develop and put on a screen that will help you to end up there. It simply comes by asking for it. It is the work of God the Holy Spirit to reveal more and more of himself to you. D.A. Carson, fantastic theologian, he says, because of what Paul is saying here, you and I must realize that to maintain this kind of relationship, we have to pray for it. If we fail to do so, we betray, listen to this, our cool interest in really wanting to know God better even though a moment's reflection would show us there's nothing more important in God's entire universe, both in time and in eternity, than knowing Him better. It's allowing the Lord's work to be done the Lord's way. It's allowing Him to do the very thing that He has promised to do. 
to allowing him by his spirit to do the work of enlightening the eyes of our heart that we might know him better by asking him to do the very thing he's promised. We're asking him to do what he has promised to do the way he intends to do it. And I'll be honest with you, I don't have the time to go into this in a lot of depth, but I will tell you, this is the strength of the persecuted church. Spending time in refugee camps and spending time with underground pastors in Central Asia, spending time with people who don't have an entire Bible, people who don't go to seminary, people who don't have the internet connections to download classes and to sit there and listen to them, to go to all these things. They don't have a lot of information about God, but they know him. They know him. They stay buoyed in joy, thriving as a follower of Christ, thriving as a fellowship of believers together, not because they know so much about him, but together collectively, they know him. They know him. So I go over to these places and get asked to come over here to teach these pastors and to teach these followers of Christ, to give them information about God that would help buoy what they know about God to be true. And all along, they're teaching me what it really means to know him. Because if anybody's guilty of leaning too far into our own strength and our own wisdom and our own resource and ingenuity, finding ourselves doing what the Lord calls us to do in the way that I think it should be done, it's me. And spending time with people who get on a boat with 30 of their friends and 30 of their closest family and making their way out into a sea not knowing where they're going and landing where they are at 13 years old with only 10 of the people that started out with them throwing off a boat their own family and their own friends after they've died. Gathering together on that boat and in the place where they land, serving and worshiping the Lord as an underground fellowship from that place, trying to get to another land. They know what it is to know him. They know what it is to know him better. And this is what Paul wants for us. It's what God wants for his people, that we might not just know about him, but that we might know him better. And the way towards it is to ask him. It's his own work by his spirit to cultivate it in us. That's the first thing that Paul prays for. But that's not all Paul prays for. Paul prays that we would know him better, but in knowing him better, something else would happen. Other things would come to us, and that would be simply this. Secondly, that we would know the hope to which God has called us. That's what you find in verse 18. Having the, hearts, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, the Spirit of God revealing in greater measure to us who He is for us, knowing Him better relationally, we may know the hope to which He has called us. What Paul's inferring to here, and he, he's talked about it already in the book, and he'll talk about it more later, and we're not going to have time to go into it, but what God, Paul is referring to here is simply this. God's saving acts towards us in the past through Christ have a leaning posture forward. They, they lean forward in our lives as well. What Paul is talking about here with the hope of our salvation is ultimately the goal of all of God's salvation works in our life. All that he has promised that has yet to become fulfilled. There's a focus towards that. What Paul's talking about here in, in the most detailed way is a cultivation of the hope and nothing less than all that God has promised in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul is asking that having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, coming to know God better and better and better and increasingly more and more and more that he would do the work in knowing him of cultivating in us the urgency of eternity. See, as the, as the urgency of eternity and the fullness of the hope that God has promised us in the new heavens and the new earth and being like him and being made like his son, what happens is as that urgency grows in our hearts, it begins to shape the way we live in the here and now. The hope of our calling in Christ 
And so it begins to loosen the grip of our hands on the world we find ourselves in now. Without this kind of urgency in the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, the, the grip of our hearts can hold so tight to what we can see and what we can touch. It can hold so tight to the promises of the world that we're in, hold out to us. And what Paul is praying for and what comes as a result of knowing God better and better is that our hearts are cultivated with the urgency of the hope that he's promised and what lies ahead. It's this kind of hope that will pull us through some of the darkest days that you and I will face with a measure of confidence in who God is. As this urgency of eternity and the hope of our calling grows in our hearts, you and I will do the things necessary by the grace of God with joy to make the sacrifices necessary to see places around the world that have been unengaged with the gospel come to hear and to know the grace of God in Christ. It takes sacrifice, it takes decision, it takes a change in the way we live here and now, it takes the way, a change in the way we see the, the life we live now, the resources that God has given us, all that he's doing in us, that change comes from knowing him better and knowing him better stirs in us the urgency of eternity because of the hope of the calling that he's given us. Paul wants nothing more than for that to grow in the hearts of God's people. And not only that, Paul will pray that in knowing God better, you and I would know the rich inheritance that God possesses in his people. And that may sound strange to some of you because I think a lot of times when we read this, we naturally read in the context of what Paul has said, the rich inheritance that is ours because of what God has done in Christ. But what Paul actually says right here in this prayer is that we would know the rich inheritance that God possesses in his people. Verse 18, the riches of God's, his glorious inheritance in the saints. See, back in verses 11, verses 14, we don't have time to go back into them in detail, but Paul is letting the church know by way of fantastic teaching that God has made us his own through Christ and sealed us by his spirit so that by the grace of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we, God's people, become his prized possession. One commentator will say that God's people made up of both Jews and Gentiles, they're God's inheritance, his possession in whom he will display to the universe the untold riches of his glory. What Paul is praying for here is that you and I might come to know who we are in God's eyes because of what he's done for us through his son. It's an issue of identity. Again, D.A. Carson, fantastic scholar, he says that you and I as God's people, we need to know who we are. You need to know who you are as God sees you. So in this prayer, Paul wants you to appreciate the value that God places on you, not because you're intrinsically worthy, but because you've been identified with Jesus, because you've been chosen in Jesus. His righteousness has been reckoned to you. Your destiny is to be a joint heir with him. If you maintain this vision before your eyes of who you are, nothing less than God's own inheritance, you will finally be fit and concerned to live in line with this unimaginably high calling. What changes the way that we live in light of the hope that God has promised us in his son, a fruit of knowing him better and better and better by a work of his spirit in our heart, what then changes the way that we live? It's knowing who we are. It's coming to terms today and tomorrow with what it means to be God's chosen possession in light of his son. And Paul wants for the church more than anything else, more than more money, more than more buildings, more than more power, more than more influence. Paul wants the church to realize who they are. 
because it's living in light of who you are because of the grace of God that changes the way we live. And it's the change in the way we live before a watching world that reflects and glorifies the one who saved us. It's for his glory and ultimately our joy. And it's to that end that Paul prays. But there's another petition, and I took all that time to get to this one, because this is the one that really hit me the last two weeks. I was standing in one refugee camp almost two weeks ago that was built to house about 350 people, and two, I mean, and, and two years ago it had 2,500 in it, living in handmade pup tents and in the middle of a bitter, bitter, bitter German winter. And I'm standing there now, and there's about 550 people in it. And the majority of people in this particular refugee camp are from Afghanistan and, and uh, Eritrea and Macedonia. And right before I got there, there were a number of Albanians. And if you read anything about geopolitical culture, most of those people don't get along. And so what I found is while one part of the world opens up their arms to everybody, they don't do a lot of homework to figure out who can actually be with everybody. And so they end up building all these fences in this camp because they've got to keep all these people away. And I'm spending time with one group of people and I'm watching kids over here about 20 yards away from me get into just nasty, brutal fights with one another, saying things to one another that they've only heard their mom and dad say. And I'm standing there in the middle of all this and it's not hard to draw a straight line from their situation of not being able to, to be together as one group in one place given the vast historical situations that have come between those people and to draw a straight line to even where we are, as privileged as we are. And I just stood there and began to think, how will people gathered from all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, all different generations, all different economic strata in society actually live out the reality of the gospel, actually live the way that Paul is praying? I mean, how does that actually come to pass? I mean, it feels like sometimes, even in the church, in the West, and praise God it hasn't been that way here, but for some people it might feel a little bit like that, but the reality is there are situations we find ourselves in, even in the church, where it seems like we might need to build some fences between people because it just, just doesn't seem to work. How does this actually happen? Well, it's not going to be because we can come up with some great strategy for it. Yes, what we do requires wisdom. Yes, what we do requires strategic thinking at times. But it's not going to be because we were smart enough to come up with the right strategy to create this kind of life together amongst God's people. It's only going to happen by the power of God. And so Paul prays that God's people would know the energizing power of God towards them. Just listen to what he says in verse 19. He's praying that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. God has given His power to the church through His Son. But again, a moment of honesty. I would not say that God's people and I'm going to narrow it down to the West. I'll even narrow it down to my life. I'll even narrow it down to this church. I wouldn't say that we're characterized by a dependence upon this power. See, to live a life today and tomorrow and the next day and on in, 
in dependence upon the immeasurably great power of God towards us would require us to actually admit that we're weak, that we're needy, and we don't like it. We don't like to do that. But it's at that very point of weakness that we have a promise from God of an unlimited power to accomplish all that he has called us to do. Not just to make the decisions and the opportunity, take advantage of the opportunities and take the steps necessary to see a gospel made known in a part of the world that's never heard it before. Not just in those kinds of things. But in all that Paul is going to begin to encourage the church in in the book of Ephesians. It's the greatness, immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe that is necessary to walk worthy of the calling of God with all gentleness and patience, to bear with one another in love, to love and serve one another, to stand fast against the schemes of the devil, to walk in integrity, to display the beauty of the gospel in our marriage, to encourage and not exasperate our kids, to live as renewed people, to put away falsehood and to speak truth, to let no unwholesome word come out of our mouth, to put away bitterness and wrath and anger and slander and malice, to be kind to one another, to be tenderhearted and forgiving toward one another, to walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself for us, to open our mouths and to make known the mystery of the gospel even in the place where we live. All that Paul is going to direct the church towards, it only happens because of the immeasurably great power of God towards us who believe. Because of that, Paul wants you to understand something about this immeasurably great power. We see all kinds of displays of power around us There's no shortage of power in the world that we live in. With a simple decision and the movement of a joystick, we can eliminate entire villages on another part of the world and never even be there. I mean, there's no shortage of power on display, but not power like this. Paul says this power is according to the working of God's might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The power to be God's people, to live as a reflection of God's grace towards us in front of a watching world, to live every single day in the reality of our own inability and weakness and challenges of life comes from the same power that God exercised in raising Jesus from the dead and in his ascension to God's right hand. I mean, if you try to give yourself just a minute to think about it, it's almost too great to conceive. It's a power that we can't even really get our finite minds around. It's so great, I think, that that's one of the reasons why when we come face to face with difficulty... We come face-to-face with obstacles. We come face-to-face with challenges. We come face-to-face with our own weakness and inability. We naturally look to something else to lean into. And the greatness of God's power that he has shown to us, the same power he used in raising his son from the dead and in seating him at his right hand, I think it becomes so inconceivable to a mind that is not growing to know God better that it's natural in the face of weakness to look to something else. It's just too much for my finite mind to get around. But yet God has said he has given his church for their good and his glory, resurrection power. Resurrection power. British pastor Curtis Vaughn 
He said the power available to us in daily living. So now we're going to go from not just seeing the gospel made known to an unengaged, unreached people in another part of the world. We're going to go not just from seeing the grace of God and and the gospel just break out on the loose in this city. We're going to go down to the way you and I live every single day on the face of this earth. Curtis Vaughn says the power available to us in daily living is not to be conceived of as a tiny brook barely meeting the demands made on it. It's to be seen like a surging river, driving before itself all the obstacles it may encounter. And this immeasurably great power, it extends, Paul said, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but in the age to come. There is no power that you can conceive of There's no power that in our own ingenuity we can put on display. There's no power that you can chase in this life that can come close to the infinitely and immeasurably great power of God that he has unleashed for the good of his people and ultimately his own glory. Which is why I love how Paul kind of closes this prayer out. Paul says that God put all things under Jesus' feet. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This infinitely, immeasurably great power of God is at work for the glory of God and the good of his people. Although God is the head of everything through Christ, Jesus is in particular the head of the church. He's ideally placed, John Stott said, to ensure that all of his sovereignty is exercised for his people's good. God's sovereign rule over all things, his immeasurably great power towards us who believe is mediated through Jesus, his son, so that all of it is exercised for the good of his people. That's that's you. It's for the good of all who believe. In the face of what feels like at times in seemingly impossible tasks, the gospel to unreached people, the hearts of children and family made new, the capacity today to forgive someone who hurt me yesterday. You and I busy ourselves with so many things, trying to muster up or find the right power or strength to do what God's called us to do, while all along we've neglected to pray for the eyes to see and know the power of God that will enable us to face every single one of those weaknesses and challenges with resurrection power. To see the Lord's work done in the Lord's way. Friends, he gives his power to the church, to live, to serve, to love, to do, to speak, to rejoice, to worship, and to witness that in the end all things might be glorified through those he has redeemed at the price of the bloody death of his son. Friends, this morning God God would call us to own our weakness. I mean, this is where Paul is going to go in the next chapter of the book of Ephesians. He's going to call us to own our own weakness, reminding us that apart from the grace of God, we would remain dead in our sin and trespasses. But, but, the grace of God through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means that you and I can rejoice in our weakness 
rejoice in our utter inability, knowing that, that it's in our weakness that God provides a surpassing greatness, a power that is infinitely greater than all we could ever imagine, and he, and he supplies it towards us for our good and for his glory. Friends, as you and I confess our weakness and we proclaim our confidence in God's provision to us, we do it every single time we take communion together as a family. Did you know that? Every single time we gather together and we take a moment in our gathering to receive the elements of communion, remembering the body of Jesus broken in our place for our sins, the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sins, remembering that he's not in the grave any longer, that God raised him from the dead, and right now he is seated at the right hand of God. As you and I receive communion, we are confessing, we are proclaiming publicly to one another, we are utterly unable to do all that God has called us to do, and we are proclaiming to one another again our confidence that God has indeed provided for us an immeasurably great power a greatness and power that's beyond anything that we conceive, can conceive to do the very thing he's called us to do. Friends, in just a moment, as we receive communion together, as you come forward, you're going to remember your weakness and your need that was so great it sent God's Son to the cross. You have a chance again to remember, to proclaim a confidence in God's provision in, with, for, with, through Jesus in your place and God's promise of this power towards you, that you can know him better and that his power works through you for, for ultimately the good of his people and his glory. Again, Francis Schaeffer, he said, to the extent that we don't humble ourselves, to the extent that you and I, we, we don't own our weakness, to the extent that we don't come to grips with our own utter inability to do what it is that God calls his people to do, not just the big things like the gospel to the unengaged peoples, but to live as a reflection of his grace today when you get in the car. If you and I don't humble ourselves to the extent that we will not own our weakness, Schaefer says, there will be no power of the Holy Spirit at work in our life. The Lord's work in the Lord's way is the Lord's work in the power, the immeasurably great power of his spirit, not, not our flesh. So this morning, let's, let's humble ourselves and pray that God, by his grace, may open up the eyes of our hearts that we may know him better, that we may know the hope of his calling, the richness of our identity in his son and the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe, the power that is sufficient for everything that's set before us. So in just a moment, the musicians will begin to play. And we're going to give you a couple of minutes to just reflect on God's word. And then all who have seen their need for Christ and confessed their sins to him and called out to him to save them, the receiving of communion is for you this morning. Communion is a public proclamation of our weakness in God's provision. 
And so this morning, as we stand and we come to receive, I want to remind you, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we are glad that you are here, but I want you to understand just completely, as clearly as I can, it would be dishonest of you to come forward to receive communion because in receiving communion, we're proclaiming our sins and our awareness of our utter inability and the need of God's provision for us in Jesus, and we're proclaiming our confidence in God's provision for us and his promise towards us. So this morning, as people come forward to receive communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to stay where you are and God's encouragement to you this morning is to receive him. It's to receive him as your savior, as your king, to know him better and to know the surpassing greatness of the power that raised his son from the dead towards you. We're glad that you're here. We want to help you along the way to know, to know not only things about God, but to come to know who he is. Maybe even this morning you could pray and you could ask him. Ask him to open the eyes of your hearts to know him, to know the greatness of his grace and mercy towards you. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to take a couple of minutes to reflect and then we're going to celebrate and respond. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us and we just ask this morning that you would help us to know you better. We don't want to know more information about you. It's good. We want to grow in that but what we want more than anything is intimacy with you. So Lord, we ask that by your spirit you would help us to live today strengthened by the hope of our calling, that the grip of our heart on the world around us would become looser and looser, and the sense of the urgency of the eternity and the promise that you put before us would grow, that we may know your love for us in Jesus and who we are in him. Lord, we ask that you would do the miracle necessary in all of our hearts to help us to live in the dependence of your immeasurably great power. We want your work to be done in your way for your glory and our joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.